and me and dine me when I was your girl. Promised if I'd be your wife, you'd show me the world. But all I've seen of this old world is a bed and a doctor bill. I'm tearing down your brooder house, cause now I've got the pill. Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I will be beginning uh, a short series on Mary McCarthy's novel Birds of America. Birds of America was published in 1971, and it was the first novel she had published after the group, her the, the best-selling group, the one that was made into a film. Uh, I talked about that in the previous three episodes. Uh, it took her another eight years to come out with another novel. And this novel is quite different from any other Mary McCarthy novel we have looked at. Uh, in part because it's not really about relationships and women. It's not about academic culture so much, although it does deal with philosophy a little bit. It, it's from the perspective of student rather than an academic or intellectual and it doesn't deal with a group. I talked a lot in the last couple episodes how the book, The Group, uh, sets, you know, it, it uses this concept as the title. It, but as is actually the concept that runs throughout so many of Mary McCarthy's works, from the Oasis to the Groves of Academe to the to uh, even the company she keeps in a way. Uh, though all those novels dealt with in some ways group dynamics and what it's like to be in a group and and what that group identity is and how that group identity uh, actually kind of manifests in toxic ways sometimes. Uh, The group, that novel, the group, looks at this theme in a slightly more positive way, looking at a group of women engaging in kind of similar crises and struggles in a, you know, having all graduated at the same time. There's really, in this novel, only one or two main characters is really um, a young man and his mother are the only two kind of recurring characters. There's others that pass through, but it's really about one young man. Uh, it's also very much a novel of the 60s, I think. And, and even if, if the group is a book about second wave feminism, this book is really contemporary. It really feels like a book about the 60s and, and the, the struggles that young people faced in the 60s, the ideas they were playing with. And more so than I think any other novel that we looked at, it's a book about liberalism and liberal ideals and although Mary McCarthy herself is very much a liberal we see the limits of liberalism as a philosophy through this character Peter uh, it's a book about American identity in a way and it does it as so many authors have done by you know all the way going back to Mark Twain by telling a travel log telling a, the story of, a, of an American in in Europe right and I haven't even got into Henry James yet in this series and someday Perhaps I will, but he, of course, deals with that quite a lot. He himself was was an expat for, for most of his life. So it, it it's an interesting novel. It, it's my least favorite Mary McCarthy novel by far, and The Cannibals and Missionaries, the last Mary McCarthy novel, I'm not that fond of either, although that kind of gets back to the group dynamic. I, I think both feel really dated and contemporary, to be honest. They, they feel like they're novels of their time. They deal with very, very specific um, issues facing people at that time, but you know, I, I, I guess I'm just not digging this novel and Candles and Missionaries the same way I dug the group and some of her other work. That said, there's a lot of interesting things going on in Birds of America. It's not it's 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 not worthless to read. 
I think you can get a lot out of it. But if you only had to pick one or two Mary McCarthy novels to read, I wouldn't put Birds of America high on the list. But if you're doing what I'm doing, kind of going through these works fairly systematically, you know, it has its its, its moments. It, it's not as fun either as, as some of the novels. It's, it's kind of bleaker. And maybe that comes out of our main character, Peter, who's kind of a... He's, he's just kind of an idealistic young man who's kind of weird at times. He's got a very weird relationship with his mother. Uh, it's a little bit too close. I don't think Mary Crowley goes so far as to kind of imply anything else is going on there, but it's it's he's kind of a mama's boy. His, his parents are divorced. He calls his dad Badu, Babu, you know, using this kind of a, a foreign kind of colloquial term for father to refer to him, but they're divorced. His wife or his mother had a second husband and they divorced. So it's kind of this relationship is the core one in their lives. They, everyone else is kind of just passing through. And he's just really, really young. I think that's so many of her characters that we looked at before are, if they're not old, they're, you know, they're not already of kind of middle age. Like we see that in Gross Vacadim. Um, we see it in the company she keeps in the Oasis. They're they're at least maturing, right? They're they're kind of going through a maturation process. The characters in the group were already adults, already had most of them had sex lives, many of them were getting married, and they're facing like really adult issues. And Peter, the main character in this novel, is still so much a child. Like so even the way he looks at things, it was this great naivete. And I think in a way maybe Mary McCarthy is trying to say something about an aspect of liberalism in America is that it is a bit kind of naive and short-sighted and, and too idealistic, right? I think that's the heart of what's going on here is idealism is fine and all, but it doesn't get you that far in, in real situations. Um, you know, like, for instance, our character here is obsessed with Kantian philosophy, with uh, especially the Kantian moral philosophy, the idea that you shouldn't treat someone as an end, right? But in practice, we find that almost impossible to, to live up to and to deal with. And, and it really comes to a real moral crisis in our character's life as he goes to Paris to study at the Sorbonne, 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 study at the Sorbonne largely to avoid the Vietnam War. And he admits it, and he knows this, that basically that just means that some poor kid is gonna have to go to Vietnam rather than him. And he's morally conflicted about it, but he still chooses to go to Paris. So he doesn't really live up to his own ideals. And he still tries to carry them on when he's in Paris, but finds it not very applicable to his life, I guess. And I think that's kind of the case with liberals and well. Another example of this is he really wants to be like a civil rights worker because this is set in the 60s. He wants to be someone who's going to go and fight for equality of rights for, for black people in the South or whatever. But like his mom doesn't let him. And, and so we end up with like a farcical twist on this in the second chapter, which is kind of humorous. It's, it, it has a comical aspect, but it, it almost seems like the farce of the police protester encounter that, that actually had meaning elsewhere in America, but in this case, it was just stupid. So anyways, that's that's some of my overall initial impressions of, of Birds of America. So not the worst novel to spend your time reading, but I think there's better Barry McCarthy models. I, it's not my favorite, but I, I'm sure there are people who are really interested in the 60s, really interested in the, like the expat experience who might find more value in this particular novel. Oh, another thing that I really didn't think about this novel is it's kind of meandering and, and at times it's a bit boring for me. I, I just I never felt bored with with some of her other works, especially like 
the ones in the first volume of the Library of America edition, like the company she keeps. I never really felt bored in any of those novels. They all really kind of struck me. Maybe the Oasis a little bit, but none of the rest. And certainly not A Charmed Life, which I, which I loved. But, um, apparently that, that one hasn't aged as well. If I just read reviews online, if people have come back to this. A lot of people have seen it coming back to Mary McCarthy thanks to this collection by the Library of America. But, um, you know, it seems this one actually has more legs than A Charmed Life, but I don't see why. I think Charmed Life is just so much more, more interesting and, and valuable. Maybe because it's dealing with sexual politics, which is something I want to talk about. Here we have like a virgin who, who really doesn't have any interactions with, with women at all. His mom, you know, but we don't get enough. I'm, the mom, Rosamund, is a really, really interesting character, but we don't get enough of her, it seems to me. We spend the whole second two-thirds of the novel with Peter in Europe just dealing with expat stuff but so th those are my, my feelings about it again valuable but not I want to put it on the top of any list of must-read books um, now the themes let's let's talk about the themes a little bit here um, now the book's called Birds of America and as you probably know uh, uh, Audubon's book Birds of America has the same title. Um, someday I am going to look at naturalistic writers, and sometimes I think that should be the next series. You know, look at John Muir, look at John Audubon, look at Aldo Leopold, um, Bartram, these kind of people, because the Library of America has a really nice collection of nature writing. Um, but, of course, Audubon's book, Birds of America, right? And he was famous for drawing birds. Um, and she uses this title, and our character, Peter, is, is really interested in birds. He the first scene is him at a, like essentially a zoo, a bird sanctuary, learning about the death of a great horned owl. And the birds show up a lot in the novel. And, and he's really attuned to that because he's interested in birds. So what's the meaning here? Well, birds are kind of presented to having this kind of collected personality. And, and that's the issue of the expat in America is, is the, the collective identity gets labeled onto them, right? And of course, the whole migration issue is thematically tied to what our main character does, kind of uh, migrating back and forth between Europe and America. It's a very middle class thing, but I think we're used to this now. Mary McCarthy writes about the bourgeoisie with a few exceptions. You know, she's interested in the bourgeoisie. Even if you're doing with leftist politics, it's from that middle class um, point of view. And there's that kind of migratory aspect to it. Um, so the birds motif shows up a lot in the novel. and it's, you know, it gives them some spice. I, I mean, some, some some of the best writing, I think, in the novel is when Mary McCarthy was talking about birds and Peter's in, in relationship with birds. All right, another major theme is liberalism and idealism, and they seem to go together because our character is both idealistic and, and kind of a, a 1960s liberal type. He understands the left, but and he, he can talk about it and discuss it, but he gets more encounters with the left and leftists when he's in Europe. He's, he's really the, he's a, he's a he's liberal. He's interested in civil rights um, and those kind of progressive causes at the time in America, but, but he's not uh, a radical. He's, he's really much of the middle class. Um, so now I think Mary McCarthy does think there's kind of a contradiction in some of these issues. I don't think this is as clear cut as the group in its politics. And, and maybe I wish it was. Maybe that's one reason I'm, I'm kind of coming off the group, which is so great and so sharp and, and so politically focused. This novel is just much more meandering like her character. Uh, and maybe that's because he's a young man, right? His ideas aren't fully formed yet, and he doesn't really understand how to apply those ideas to real circumstances. So 
you know, the best example is him avoiding a draft too, and and doing that. He knows it's it's wrong to do, but he can't really uh, jive that. Um, but generally, it's just I think he he just sees the limit of 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 his idealism when he gets into Europe. That's pretty clear. Um, now, another thing about the novel is it's a coming of age story. Obviously, now I don't think I'm not sure how far we get in him his maturation. Uh, certainly this half year he's spending in the Sorbonne in, in Europe has an effect on him, but we don't, I don't think we see the full maturation of this character. The novel just sort of ends kind of abrupt, abruptly at one point. Uh, and then we get American identity as another major theme here. And of course, the expat experience, talking about uh, travelers, talking about, you know, it's not just Peter there. There's a whole collection of American students at the Sorbonne studying like a first semester. And it's, it's pretty clear it's a cynical money-making scheme for the Sorbonne. None of the students are really learning much in classes. The classes are kind of a joke. But it's an Amer- a group of Americans abroad. And I kept thinking of like Innocence Abroad and Mark Twain's book when I was reading parts of this because it has that same kind of idea. It's like, let's understand America by, by taking a group of Americans and putting them in these foreign environments and seeing how they interact. And everything becomes clear about who you are when you are abroad, right? And I think... There might be something to that. I've lived so much of my life abroad, and I've become more conscious of, of kind of American values or, or identity through that. You know, you, you know, it's not a, you don't assimilate into the local cultures as much. If anything, you kind of tighten up your own identity, right? Now, that's not an anti-immigrant argument I'm trying to make. Of course, some nativists do think the problem with immigration is people don't assimilate. And I think that might be true that people do, when they're confronted with another culture, tighten up their own identity, right? That's why France has all these issues with Muslim women, you know, wearing veils or, or headscarves or burkinis. And, and they're saying, oh, this is anti-feminist. But, you know, these are women who choose to wear that often, not because they're oppressed, but because they're trying to articulate an identity that's separate from the majority identity of where they're living. So that theme goes on here. Um, now, as for the story itself, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the chapters in these two episodes, but I don't really want to say too much. There's a lot going on, and it's just so, so meandering. It's so unfocused. It, I mean, you could say the same about the group, I guess, in that, but the group, you had this, these core set of interesting characters that had very interesting struggles that, that I was interested in knowing how they were resolved. In this case, I don't really care about this kid that much. Maybe that's the problem. I just... I think this guy is kind of a kind of lame but um i did take some notes i did write down some things and the first half of the novel it's a little bit more than 100 pages actually but the first half of the novel covers four chapters and it basically takes him from like new england with his mother and we learn about his background and things to um to his decision to go to the sorbonne so we see his kind of first Chapter three is his first experiences in Paris, and then or in France, and then we get an epistle, a, a letter to his mother, in which Peter kind of describes his how he gets used to it. His first weeks, his first experiences in in Paris. So, so, so it's a method for Mary McCarthy to kind of get through that seasoning period of his time abroad, and it's all presented in just a letter. Um, so, anyways, um, yeah. Basically, this is our introduction to Peter in, in chapter one, Winter Visits. Now, the chapters here aren't numbered. Uh, they just have names. There's, I think, nine or ten of them in the whole book. Uh, but we're right away our introduction to Peter is as this. Peter, 
A philosophy minor was an adept of the Kantian ethic. He had pledged himself never to treat anyone as a means. The other is always an end, the maxim. Said a card he carried in his wallet with his driver's license, vaccination certificate, and memberships in SNCC, CORE, and SANE. And yet, because of his shyness, which made his approaches circuitous, he repeatedly found himself doing exactly that. It was only a kind of wild loyalty to the owl that had disgorged the question from his lip just as he was about to shut the door. If he never did ask now, he prided himself he would never find out. It would be no use asking the rocket port. Well, anyways, it goes on and talking about his, you know, he's trying to figure out what happened to this owl in this bird sanctuary that died. Uh, this, you know, we see his affinity for birds right away, and the bird motif shows up a lot. The point is that he, his identity is, is, is kind of this Kantian liberal, right? And he's not in the civil rights struggle in any meaningful sense, but he's got membership cards to core SNCC. We don't get any sense he's actually in the anti-nuclear movement, but he's got a membership card to SANE, which I think that's the anti-nuclear organization. So he's a he's like a card-carrying, literally like a card-carrying liberal. But he don't see him ever like on the picket lines, ever in a protest movement. And partially his mom doesn't really let him do that, but I'm not sure this guy's going to do it either anyways. He's just kind of a, you know, just a young man who who has these ideals, but doesn't seem... We don't see, I don't see any evidence that he's willing to put his life on the line or risk his you know, freedom to, to actually engage in civil disobedience. And the, fine, the one time we do, it, it's, it's so absurd and comical. It doesn't really, I mean, it's almost like Mary McCarthy's trying to make the point directly that this, this is not someone who's going to you know, face the, water ho the fire hoses in, in Birmingham or whatever. Now, this opening scene, actually, I like this first chapter. I like the novel in the first chapter. Um, you know, we get this really interesting idea of, of nature because he goes to this wildlife sanctuary and that he loves, um, but we're kind of see this kind of loss, nature's, how nature kind of gets lost in confinement. And maybe that's another metaphor for our character peter who is quite confined in, in much of his life and he, he you know going to paris helps it certainly helps him break out of his skin a little bit um but i don't know maybe it's a coming of age metaphor you know uh let's see here uh there's a quote here that made me think this way um quote but then peter would be responsible for the sequel what if the owl weakened by captivity was unequal to liberation he's he's thinking here he's thinking about should he help these animals flee the sanctuary and he kind of chooses not to because personally he's not going to be the kind of radical who's going to free all the birds but he kind of justifies it right so quote what if the owl weakened by its captivity was unequal to liberation it might starve leave on its own in the left on its own as the wood alternately the predatory killer freed might make a holocaust in the wildlife refuge peter thought with anguish of the pine gross beaks he had on his mother that, that he and his mother had seen almost tame in the wild apple trees on Columbus Day. He imagined their rosy bodies all red with gore. A sanctuary is meant to be safe. He recognized with a sad hello the classic conservative argument as they passed through his head. Arguments for not meddling with the status quo. A silent shadow like a shadow of a hunting bird fell across his happiness. He wished he had never thought of releasing the owl in his first place. Now that the notion had changed, of change had glided in his mind, he could not just accept the bird being there as natural. It had to be justified. Perhaps he was simply getting bored, but it no longer gave him much pleasure to engage in the startling match with the barred and striped prisoner, a game that, in any case, his mother deplored. 
When Armistice Day came, he rejected her offer to bring a picnic to a sanctuary. Let us take in a movie, he said in a sullen voice. End quote. So we just see him going from kind of a really radical and interesting idea to justifying not doing it to going to a movie, right? Even buying conservative arguments. And then then on we at the end, going to a movie. Uh, I mean, that's, that's some good stuff here, I have to say. This book has its moments. It's just overall... I'm just not, I'm not digging it so much. Uh, a whole lot in Bert, uh, Winter Visit, it's about his relationship with his mother, which at first struck me as kind of weird, but the more I thought about it, since, you know, she did divorce and they were living together, they did have a much closer relationship than maybe if his father was in the picture. The father doesn't even get referred to as dad or anything, he's just called Babu, and I had to look that up. That's actually like a pen name from some other language. Um, he's also quite artistic. The family's artistic. They they play music and and they're interested in music and they're interested in art. So they're an educated middle class family, and we get our full introduction to them in Winter Visits. It's a fairly lengthy chapter with a lot of details about it, but mostly it sets up this this family um, and this character Peter. So in chapter two is called the Battle of of. Battle of Rockyport. Rockyport's some village, some small town in New England that they they stay in for a while. They're they're kind of mobile. They're, they're they have enough money that they're able to do that. And um, yeah, it's mostly more about this relationship between Peter and Rosamund and some of their politics. And here we get a scene I was referring to before, which is kind of a farcical encounter with the police. Right? Civil rights workers, of course, encounter the police all the time. Hostile police officers. They spend time in jail. And Rosamond ends up spending time in jail here, but it's really for a ridiculous reason. Uh, what basically happens is they're renting this apartment, this house, and there's a parade going by, and the owner of the house wants to put up some like fake historical posters or something, kind of in the theme of the parade or whatever, and she, Rosamond doesn't want to do it. And the police end up coming and saying, well, the owner of the house wants this up, so you have to sort of do it. And she ends up refusing and she ends up in jail. <laughs> and in this, we get Peter thinking about civil disobedience. Because, of course, this is the closest he's going to get to civil disobedience in, in, in 60s America. I mean, his disobedience is, I guess, to go avoid the draft by going to the Sorbonne. But, um, you know, he compares himself to throw here, which is so ridiculous. It's, um, but... I mean, it, it's it's who Peter is. It's who this. It's what this this family is, and again, the shallowness of of straight up liberalism, I think, is is exposed here. Liberalism is just an ideal, um, without something that's actually being worked out on the ground in struggle. Quote: Peter realized that he was happy too. He and his mother were jailbirds like Throw. True, they were getting preferential treatment, but probably Throw had got preferential treatment too. Small worries crossed his mind. He had left his motorbike in the backyard with the gate unlocked. He hoped nobody would steal it. His father might be angry if he was late arriving at the Cape. He was never one to listen to an excuse. But Peter could not really get alarmed. He felt safe with his mother in this clapboarded jail. It had a cozy small-town Yankee atmosphere. Quite near at hand, he heard an owl hoot. His mother whispered that the fireworks were exceptionally good. They don't change much, said the jailer. Ain't much not new you can do with a rocket or a Roman candle. They were lucky he added to have box seats. So they're able to see from the jail the, the fireworks even. Yeah, it, it just strikes me as a whole um, farce of, of that 
of the protesters being thrown in jail. And they protest for such a st stupid thing. Um, but, yeah, this is all in America, too, this chapter. It's in chapter three, To Be a Pilgrim, that we get his, his, his arrival in Paris. His arrival as a student in Paris. Now, that's going to be the bulk of the novel. Uh, you know, he spends some time in Italy, but the bulk of the novel will be him in Paris over this semester. So, again, he's studying at the Sorbonne on some kind of student exchange program, but it seems to be just an excuse to avoid the draft for some people or excuse for rich people to go spend a semester in Paris. For some, might be they, they want to learn French. Uh, Sorbonne doesn't give them too much thought. I mean, in fact, there's one funny comment about this whole program in that there was more, like, five times as many members in the program, like students in the program, than were desks at the lecture hall. So they actually didn't want students coming to the lecture because, you know, there wasn't enough seats for the students. I mean, it's just the money-making engine, right, at work, which we see in many universities, you know, clamoring for foreign students or whatever. Um, so, yeah, at this point, the novel becomes a bit of a travelogue, um, you know, with his arrival at, at Paris to study at the Sorbonne. Uh, we get a lot here about the experience of Americans abroad and how they're easily identifiable, how they kind of form communities and, and interact with each other. You know, I, I do want to talk about the political context of the 60s here and America's place in the world. Of course, France is part of NATO, right? But this wasn't always a, a peaceful, a, a her, well, it was peaceful, but it wasn't always harmonious, harmonious relationship. And there is evidence pretty strongly in this novel of growing anti-Americanism here. Uh, quote, Peter did not blame the French or anyone else for not liking America after what had happened last summer while he was sat getting a tan at Rocky Port. Just being white, he thought, did not make him guilty, but it was one strike against him like original sin, which was not your fault, you had to be paid for. He had been sending contributions from his allowance to corn snick, and he would have mowed lawns in Rocky Port and donated the proceeds if anyone had had a lawn left to mow instead of a flag terrace or what they call a ground cover. He was not a civil rights hero, on the other hand, to be fair to him. He was not a racist murderer. He felt a sympathy for his country, which had to look at itself in this ugly mirror every night on television. End quote. So the, the peak of the civil rights movement did, you know, civil rights itself became a point of, of what I'm trying to say, of negative propaganda for the United States, right? You can think about the, how the Chinese could point to inequality between blacks and whites and the civil rights movement to say, see, you know, they're no, you know, we're better than them. At least we don't have this issue, right? And the Soviet Union could do the same thing. Civil rights became a blight on the United States at a time when it's trying to present itself as the alternative to the socialist system, right? And certainly in France, we had a much stronger left. You're going to have a lot more of this anti-American sentiment, you know, seeing America as essentially an apartheid state, which in many parts of the country it was. So that's despite the U.S. being a very powerful country, you know, I think still troops in Europe, right? This, the head of this very, very powerful political alliance, military alliance, the most powerful that's ever existed, NATO. And this, this, this becomes the central backdrop, I think, of, of his time in Paris is navigating this. And I, I think partially it does lead him to identify as an American and think about what that, that means. It, it makes him think about politics in new ways, which is certainly interesting. Um, but yeah, that, that's kind of what's going on in the backdrop of, of that. And it's all introduced here in To Be a Pilgrim. But I do want to talk about the title of this chapter, To Be a Pilgrim. You know, it sounds like 
Bunyan, right? Pilgrim's Progress, right? And there's this ideology here of being abroad and being a pilgrim, and it's something that Peter has essentially embraced here. And it's very annoying in a way. It's like a, some, a student who studies abroad for a semester or a year, making that experience something greater than it is. I've seen it. You've probably seen it. You, you maybe know someone who studied abroad. I studied abroad, you know, and I probably said obnoxious things afterwards. But it's so common, right, to, to think that your experiences are so much greater. Your life has been expanded by studying abroad, right? Even calling himself a pilgrim. I mean, how odious, how obnoxious is that, right? It's like, it's, it's really cringeworthy, really. And I think Mary McCarthy does a decent job exposing that. There are some nice uh, jokes, I guess, in this chapter as well. I think the funniest stuff comes with the awkward use of language, like when he tries to use French, because his French is okay. He tries to use French and no one understands what he's saying, and eventually, like, the People just talk English to him because it's easier for them. That was really funny stuff. And again, something someone who studied a language abroad or at home and then goes abroad finds their language ability is usually pretty uh, weak, and they're they're kind of embarrassed that you know they, they thought they understood how to say things until they get there. Right. Um, that's that was a great moment, I think. Actually. Um, so, anyways, that's the chapter to be a pilgrim. Then we have the epistle. Uh, the epistle from Mother Carrie's Chicken. Uh, and this is a letter from Peter to his mother. He signs it Pierrot Le Fou, which seems pretentious to me. But anyways, he he does a couple things in here. The first part of this epistle, and it's a fairly long letter, 20 pages in the book or so, but the first half is all exp about his kind of settling in to, to Paris. So that's mostly what it's about, his conforming to society, his lack of contacts, how he got an apartment, all that. And then about halfway into the letter, right in the middle, he starts to shift to politics, right? And partially he has commentary on American politics, like should you vote for McCarthy or Johnson? Obviously, this family's not going to vote for McCarthy. So this does date the, the novel to 1968, if you... Um, no, 1964, sorry. Uh, if, if you're paying attention to that... Um, to the to the presidential politics of it all now he he, he kind of I, I think she's like looking for like a third party or something like she rosamond once real mentioned she can't vote you can't vote for norman thomas anymore norman thompson shows up a lot thompson shows up a lot in her mary mccarthy's books actually or he's mentioned a lot and her, her son's writing to her that this is kind of a class prejudice you have that you you don't like lyndon johnson because he looks too kind of typical or he's too normal he's too like working class in a way too common and he says um, doesn't that show that your whole way of looking at things is permeated by archaic caste notions if i argue that harry truman was common you'd say no he was ordinary a fine distinction i guess an ordinary person is a common person you approve of then you say you don't like johnson's face it's crafty well i just looked that word up in the dictionary it comes from the craft an artisan's skill at twisting his material which proves how we still despise the artisan the guy who has to work with his hands. And it isn't just you. Our whole vocabulary is rotten with feudal distinctions. Look at villain or clown. These were just words for peasants. End quote. That's true, by the way. And it's an interesting observation. What, what kind of is weird about this is it's so intellectualized, this conversation. And, and maybe some children and parents are able to talk that way because they come from similar educational backgrounds or just through experience. But 
Um, it's it's kind of interesting. I also thought a little bit about like politics and expats, and, and maybe this is like the whole American identity thing of how you know people maybe ponder more their own political views and and thoughts when they when they when they are abroad. And and it's like when I talk to Americans here in China, we don't talk about Chinese politics that much. We don't talk about like the the fourth plenum of the Communist Party or or that. I mean a little bit perhaps, but no one here. I'm not. I don't, I don't mean no one, but. Most expats here don't seem to really understand Chinese politics or the Communist Party or the systems here. So I try to understand a little bit, but still, I probably follow American news more than and politics more than I do even Chinese. So it's it's um, it is what it is. Um, now he segues from this conversation about Johnson and his mother's kind of prejudice against Johnson to a, a support for language reform. The you know, and he goes into the philosophy of it. And the whole thing in the second half of this letter, it just goes into this prolonged, really, really interesting um, discussion about equality. And one thing that kind of brings this discussion into focus for him is he, he kind of laments the damage done to Parisian architecture and statues and things during the French Revolution. And he thinks this is, uh, you know, this, this was a bad thing, right? This is the liberal in him, right? But at the same time, he believes in equality and he knows historically, intellectually, he knows that that path from monarchy to equality required that that, that destruction. Uh, it doesn't help him from lamenting it, right? It's, it's like the, the revolutionary doesn't want to, or the, the, the egalitarian doesn't want to like smash the state or smash society or smash hierarchy before getting there, right? It's you see the same thing when people talk about the Cultural Revolution in China, and they focus on, oh, the statues that were destroyed, or the temples that were destroyed, or, or the families that may have been broken up, without really getting at the heart of what the Cultural Revolution was trying to achieve, which for some, at least, the activists, I don't know if they really think for Mao it was this, but for many it was this effort to try to get to a more democratic society. And that, that, that was a failed revolution, obviously. And then all we have now is the residue of the destruction, and we... And that's what we focus on rather than the effort, the politics, what was really there on the ground. And that's his experience here, looking at the destruction going on in, that took place in Paris. And Peter's not stupid. He realizes that there, there may have had to been this destruction. Quote, but afterwards I thought that maybe those French mobs had been logical in wrecking the symbols of the old regime. Those decapitated statues shook my democratic complacency. Whoever did that meant business, only they didn't go far enough. They should have chopped off the head of language while they were at it. That was the point, of course, of changing the names of the day and the months and starting the calendar over. But they needed a bigger purge. No more say devant words. Only words that pointed to something like tree or house. It was the idea behind English linguistic philosophy. I guess he wouldn't know. Instead of devouring his own children, the revolution should have killed off its parents. They would have had to abolish all past literature and art, including the luminaires, Grinning Voltaire and the Holy Virgin, possibly music to all those masses and madrigals and stately minuets, smash into harpsichords and pianos, unstring the violins, into the cannon foundry with those nightly trumpets. Naturally, this might have all been offensive to me had I been alive then. After all, I hate to lop off the head of a dandelion. But if, I, if it had been done in 1789, possibly I might be able to think clearly today. I feel awfully confused now as though my mind were a pool that looked transparent till it started stirring up in its muddy depths with a stick. This could be the effort at being away from home and becoming a rootless cosmopolitan. I've never felt like a foreign particle, and since I haven't anyone too congenial to talk to, I'm talking to myself. 
end quote. And he goes on like that. But most of the end of this letter is about um, civil rights, uh, white liberal guilt, you know, the, and equality. He even goes on this thing about good King Wenceslas, how, you know, now he would be like basically the, the be essentially have white guilt or elite class guilt in his case. You know, the story, the song Good King Wenceslas, I don't know if it was a story first, but you know the Christmas song, right? About the king who sees the poor peasant, brings him in for dinner, Christmas dinner one day, and that, that, that makes him a good king, right? But he's still a king and a palace over, over a feudal system, right? But he, he makes the point, it, if he was alive today, he'd have, he'd have essentially the equivalent of, of what white guilt is. Um, king Wenceslas being essentially a liberal, yeah, I guess is the criticism here. And that's kind of interesting. So anyways, that's about half the novel. Um, the first four chapters cover about half the novel. The second half of the novel includes his time in Italy. It goes in a little bit more about his daily lives and his experiences as, as an expat in, in Paris for a while. But that's all I want to talk about for this episode. Some really good moments. I think the epistle is, is kind of fascinating. I think there's some good stuff in the arrival to to Paris and, and I think the right for the right person this novel can be really inspiring and interesting uh, overall though I'm still not I'm not ready to give it a, a huge in, endorsement I just think there's better Mary McCarthy novels to to read and you know it is very different I guess I'll give it that it's very different from other novels but I don't know like if you've read the birds of America and you have your own ideas and anything to respond to or anything I've said please leave your comments below I would love to hear from you you can also send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com uh, that'll be it for now I will come back and talk about the second half of birds of America and give you, you know, some if I have any final thoughts I'll give them to you then so until next time um, and a few little fancy yeah, thanks for listening I'll see you yeah I'm making it for all those years since I've got the pill I'm tired of all your crowing How you and your hens play While holding a couple in my arms And others on the way This chicken's done for a pernest And I'm ready to make